Genesis 22, 14 to 24. 22, 14. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kemuel the father of Aram, and Hesed, and Hazo, and Phildash, and Jedlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Tabah and Gaham and Tahash and Ma'akah. Verse 14. Abraham gives this place Mount Moriah, or the land of Moriah, and the, the place, the area, the mountain. He calls it, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. If you see, maybe your Bibles will have a footnote that says that it means to be seen or to see. This word to provide means to see. Now, don't let that confuse you. If you see that um, in the footnotes or a commentary, someone like that, mentioning that to you. Because the, the way that... <coughs> The word is being used here in Genesis and in other places in the Bible. It means it in the sense of provision. For example, in even in English, when you're talking to a friend and the friend is asking you to do something, you answer the friend, I'll see to it, which, which means I will provide the answer to your request. I will do what you ask me to do. So I'll see to it. So in Hebrew, there's something similar to that. That's what's happening here. If you would like to see a couple of quick examples, one is Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, 21. 33, 21. 33, 21. And it says, Then he provided the first part for himself, for there the ruler's portion was reserved, so forth. That word provided, if, if you have a footnote, it might be the verb saw or to see, he saw. Then he saw the first part for himself. He saw it for himself. And also, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 17. Your Bible at this point may not have a footnote, but in 1617, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. 
In other words, if we were to render it literally, it would be, see for me, see for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And that's what we have here in Genesis twenty-two fourteen. So now that we know what Abraham is saying, the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it, okay? Who's going to do it? It's the Lord, right? The Lord is going to do it. We don't provide for ourselves. God provides for us. It's a one-way street in terms of provision. Uh, James 1.17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's coming from God. It comes from above. A man can receive nothing unless it is provided for him from above. John 3.30. And that's what Abraham believes. And it, further, it says, not only did Abraham call it that name, as it is said to this day. By the way, I forgot to say, there is a song that says, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, He will provide for me. That It's based on this passage, based on this verse. And you might have a footnote that says something to that effect. So now, as it is said to this day, that phrase, as it is said to this day, is until which day? Because who wrote this? Who wrote Genesis? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Who Moses. wrote the law? Moses. Moses wrote the law. Even the book of Genesis, according to Luke 24, 25 to 27, according to Luke 24, 25 to 27, because it says that Jesus explained to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, he explained the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, in all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So, he began with Moses, it says. If Jesus began with Moses to explain things about himself in the Bible, in the law, he had to start in the book of Genesis, which means Jesus believed and the disciples believed that Moses wrote Genesis. So, as it is said to this day means until the day of Moses, right? So, from Abraham's time, about 2000 BC, to Moses' time, 500 BC, uh, 1500 BC, we have 500 years. In that 500 year period between Abraham and Moses, and even though it's just one book apart, Genesis to Exodus, it's 500 year span between Abraham's life and Moses' life in Exodus chapter 2. That during that period, it was an adage, it was an axiom, it was a common expression, a cliche, a good, a good cliche. And what was the cliche that everybody used? In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Means... On Mount, in the land of Moriah, the Mount of the Lord, it's called here the Mount of the Lord. Why is that mountain so special? There, are, um, <clears throat> there isn't any biblical evidence for this directly, but Jewish commentators say that certain major significant things happened here 
on this mountain and in this place where Abraham put Isaac on the altar. We don't know the veracity of all this, but there is a history of having this place as a very important place in Jewish thinking, and even in Christian thinking, in especially in the patristic era after the time of the apostles. And that is that Adam was created from the dirt in that area. The Garden of Eden was situated there. That when Noah exited after the flood, exited the ark after the flood, when he built an altar, he built an altar in this area. And that um, other major things would happen in that place, which is the temple, they also say. The temple of Solomon was built right here. And then later, we Christians, we know that Christ was crucified in that place. Okay? Now, this last part, the last part that the temple was there and Christ was crucified, that part is in the Bible. And so it shouldn't surprise us if other significant things also happened there, but we can't say with biblical certainty that those other incidents actually did happen. But the temple was built here. Why? It was built there for a reason. Sure. And notice here, um, 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Verse 1. This is the temple of Solomon, the first temple, built in the 900s BC. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place uh, that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Solomon's temple was built where Abraham purchased this threshing floor in order to offer sacrifice to God because of the plague that had just occurred because of David's sins and the people's sins. And this is recounted in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles 21, and now it's making a reference to that incident of 1 Chronicles 21 when David purchased this threshing floor. He purchased this threshing floor. It's on Mount Moriah. Solomon builds the temple in that very place. And this, biblically speaking, is the very place that Abraham visited in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. So, I believe that I believe that they were anticipating the coming of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, the ministry of Christ in that place. That's why it's saying in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. That is They've been saying it between Abraham and Moses' time, but even in Moses' time, they're still saying it will be provided. It will be provided. If it will be provided in the future, then future for what occasion? The occasion of the coming of Christ. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said... By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing 
and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In 16, God says, By myself I have sworn. By myself I have sworn. When God swears by himself, why does he do that? He swears by himself because there is no one greater than he. This, this we learn in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews six thirteen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, the apostle quotes our passage and says the following. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Quoting our passage, he swore by himself and he swears that he will surely bless Abraham. This shows that it is God speaking. And when it says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, Christ is speaking. Earlier, he identified himself as the one to whom Abraham owes his allegiance. And then in verse 16, he's making reference also to the Father. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So the Son is quoting the Father and says, declares the Lord. And the Father is the one who says, by myself I have sworn. Also notice in verse 16, because you have done this thing, and also um, verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have done this thing, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's obedience is presented here, right? The fruit of his faith is presented here. Now, when it says that, it doesn't mean that the cause, the ultimate cause of Abraham's blessings has to do with Abraham's obedience, as though Abraham's works are meritorious works for Abraham's salvation. That's not what he means. What he means is that they are the fruit of his faith, and because I now see the fruit of the faith, I am illustrating or showing this faith that you have by this fruit, and I delight to see this fruit, and when I see this fruit, it, it confirms that you are the one through whom the Christ will come. And you are the one through whom all these blessings will spread to the nations. Why do I say that? We have to say that based on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But James helps us to do so. James chapter 2. Remember, James chapter 2 is not a contradiction is not a contradiction of the theology of the Apostle Paul. Right. James chapter 2 is an exposition of the theology of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's illustrated in Abraham. That should be in all of us. That being saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. After having this gift of faith and salvation and forgiveness, we are his workmanship created to do good works. And then God in his grace, based on our good works, he chooses to bless us. He chooses to reward us. But not because those good works originate or have their foundation in us, but they originate from heaven, and we are the instruments of this, of this faith and of this fruit displayed in our life. We are tools or instruments. That's what James' point is in James chapter 2. He begins in 2.14 by saying this, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? What he means is, if you have a futile faith, if you have an empty faith, you have just lip service kind of faith, and it has no works, can that kind of of allegation, that kind of faith, that kind of claim that you make about yourself, can that claim in and of itself save you? No. Not empty words don't save you. That's his point. That's what he's going to argue. He says, can that faith save him? And his answer is no. Then he illustrates. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet... You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And when he says, even so, faith, he means that empty faith of verse 14. The faith he is criticizing, that's the kind of faith he means. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So faith, he says, is illustrated by works proven by works. 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So, you have factual knowledge of God. Demons have factual knowledge of God. You believe in that factual knowledge, but that factual knowledge does not lead you to do good works. That factual knowledge doesn't help you. Just like the factual knowledge does not help the demons. Right. 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Abraham, when he offered up Isaac... And like we saw in Genesis 22, 16 and 18, because you obeyed me, his works are manifesting that he has true faith. That's James' argument. Then 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. In another place in scripture, such as 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. He's called the friend of God. So, the scripture is fulfilled. It was declared of Abraham, but there are illustrations or manifestations, good works throughout his life 
that fulfill and confirm that he has true faith. That's what James' argument is. And not just with um, Abraham, but with Rahab. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Abraham did not have dead faith. Now, this also reminds us that even though the things we do happen because of the indwelling Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit does these things through us, and so ultimately God receives glory, yet God chooses to bless us because He used us as an instrument of His glory. That's what's happening in Genesis 22. Not because Abraham did good works as works salvation is he blessed, but because he's an instrument of God. Then 17, 22, 17. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. When God swears, I will greatly bless you, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, What does he mean here? We have to have front and center with these promises of a seed. We have to have front and center the promise of Christ, the singular seed. After we have Christ as the singular seed, those who are united to Christ as being his offspring, as being the offspring of Christ or the descendants of Abraham in a spiritual sense. But in order to obtain or to attain, to come to this possibility of having Christ come into the world physically and die on the cross for our sins, and then to have the gospel preached not just among Jews but also among Gentiles so that some Jews and some Gentiles believe in Christ and are blessed and they have the victory over their enemies, for all of that to happen in the world to come, have victory over our enemies, for all of that to happen, there needs to be a physical nation. And there needs to be a physical offspring, singular offspring, Christ, who is born from Adam through Noah to Abraham, then through um, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, family of David, and the coming of Christ. So, we are as innumerable as the stars and as the sand. Yes, the nation was, but that's not the focus. The focus is the spiritual descendants. We are innumerable, just as it says in Revelation 7-9. And I saw a great multitude in heaven which no one could count. Revelation 7-9. A great multitude in heaven which no one could could count. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what's in view right here. That's what's in view. And verse 18. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In your seed. Now to confirm this interpretation, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, 3, 6, Galatians 3, 6, 
Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. Why does he say that? Be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. Because the Galatian heretics, being Jews, thought that because they were Jews, physically descended from Abraham, that automatically they were in the right before God and Gentiles were not. But here he's saying, you know Abraham believed, and be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham, or descendants of Abraham. How do we know this? Eight, verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you which is Genesis 12, verse 3, reiterated in Genesis 22, 17, and 18. All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. It takes faith, and faith is something that can be done by Jews and Gentiles if they are gifted with it, right? And the same faith that Abraham had in Christ Jews and Gentiles must have in Christ to be blessed with Abraham, to be blessed with him. And that it's not on the basis of works, verses 10 and 10 to 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So, in 10 to 12, he eliminates works and that it's on the basis of faith in Christ. And verse 10, Moses, when Moses delivered the law, told the people it's not based on works because in verse 10, he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 27, 26. Then after the law, hundreds of years, actually, at, at least... Uh, 800 to 900 years after the time of Moses, Paul quotes Habakkuk the prophet in verse 11, the righteous man shall live by faith, from Habakkuk 2.4. So when the law was delivered in Deuteronomy and then in verse 12 from Leviticus 18.5, when the law was delivered, Moses said at least twice, it's not based on works. You can't do it. You can have life if you do it, but you can't do it because you're under a curse. And then Habakkuk, after the law is in force, before the coming of Christ, 600 years before the coming of Christ, Habakkuk, while he's living under the period of the law of Moses, tells the people, the righteous man shall live by faith. Not works, implied. So it's not works. If it's not works, then in whom did Abraham believe, and in whom should we all believe, whether Jew or Gentile? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus to the Gentiles was the blessing that Abraham experienced and that Gentiles would experience, and this was the promise announced to Abraham. We saw that in Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Further, he says, 
Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, now the covenant uh, that he's illustrating here, he's saying, when men make covenants, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. No one changes it just like that, right? They don't change it when two men make a treaty or an agreement or a contract. It doesn't happen that way. In the same way with God, he's saying. In the same way with God, when God made a covenant with Abraham 500 years before Moses, he's not changing it. He's just using Moses to buttress the previous covenant. He's using Moses to support the previous covenant, not to contradict, not to undermine, not to abolish the previous covenant. That's what his argument is in verse 15. And then he proves it. Verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. To Abraham and to his seed. Which means promises were delivered to Abraham and they were also delivered to Abraham's seed. Singular, okay? Now, who is Abraham's seed to whom the promises were announced? Such as what we read in John 10, 17 and 18, Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. This commandment I received from my father. In the role of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Right? Behold, I come. Right? To which seed? Paul the Apostle. The authoritative Accurate, inspired Apostle Paul says this. Uh, he does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Amen. Yeah. That is Christ. He's saying it's Christ. He is the promised offspring, seed, or descendant in the singular that is the focal point of the promises, which actually started in this phraseology in Genesis 3, 15, to Adam, to Adam. Then 17, what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through, the, through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, un, uh, come to whom the promise had been made. There again, the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So the law of Moses is enforced, and he means here the aspects of the law to be enforced until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And who is that seed to whom the promise, promises had been made? Verse 16, it's Christ. So Genesis 22, 17 and 18 the focus is Christ. And Abraham was told these things. He, he told, was told these things. He believed these things according to the inspired, holy Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 3.
some hot stuff there, isn't it? Yes. And it shows that there's only one gospel. Right. One gospel right. from Adam, Noah, Abraham, all the way throughout the Old Testament, and even into the future. As some people think, even into the future, some people wrongly think, believe, that after the tribulation or after the rapture of the church, between the rapture of the church and the technical, official second coming of Christ, which is an indefinite period of time, they say, according to their theology, from rapture to second coming, that, and even in the millennial kingdom of a thousand years, all of that, those two periods of time, people are not saved by believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. They're saved by doing other things, by works. But that's not true. So, from the beginning of the world until the end of the world, we're only saved by believing in Christ. That's according to Galatians chapters 1 and 3. One says there's only one gospel, and any other gospel is a different gospel, and anyone who preaches it and believes it is under a curse. In Galatians 3, it's founded on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back to Genesis 22 and verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Although Isaac's name is not explicitly mentioned, we do know from chapter 24, 24, 25, 26, 27, so forth, that Isaac did return. And it's, it's implied. Um, then he returns to where he lived at Beersheba. Remember, this is another three-day journey back home. So now, verses 20 to 24, a genealogy. When we see a genealogy in the Bible, we should, we should not um, overlook it, no okay? We, we, even if you cannot pronounce the names, remember the names, no problem. But read it and see why that particular genealogy is there in the Bible. For one, genealogies starting in Genesis and going throughout the, the Bible into Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3 have as their intention, one of the main reasons for these genealogies is to have a line going from Adam to Christ. From Adam to Christ. That's the purpose, one of the main reasons for the genealogies as supported in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Because Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And Matthew goes back to David and to Abraham before that. So that's the purpose. So see how the scriptures, stage by stage, era by era, century by century, millennia, millennium by millennium, is explaining that the prophets are anticipating the coming of Christ because the prophets are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So see genealogies in that way. And that's what this genealogy's importance is. Other reasons are historicity, to verify that these people were real people in time and space. And some of the names in these genealogies are evidence outside the Bible that support and corroborate what's written in the Bible. Some of them are. So that we can have confidence that when the Bible writes a name, that it's a real name. It's not a fictitious name. We're not talking about fairy tales. We're not talking about mythologies. We're talking about real people. Another reason for them. Now, verse 20, 
I said that this is, it has to do with the genealogy of Christ. And why? Because of verse 23. It mentions Rebecca. It mentions Rebecca in verse 23. And this is the Rebecca that will be introduced to us in chapter 24 when Isaac needs a wife and a wife is found. It's Rebecca, and then she marries Isaac. So Isaac and Rebecca. That's the main reason, I think, for this genealogy being here to show in verse 23, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. But also, these other names are intended to show us what, who was in the family and to the extent that we know where they lived, where they dwelt, some of these names are, a few of these names are repeated elsewhere. That where they lived, where they dwelt, and that there is a distinction that God made in the lineage going from Noah to Shem and to Abraham, that there were clear demarcations made, no possibility of mixture in the line or confusion in the line. They are distinct. These are presented here, I I believe, for that reason too, to show that clearly from um, Bethuel to Rebekah, and she's the one that marries Isaac. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.